1: inventing tomorrow starts now and here are your hosts vanessa alava and sue robinson
0: welcome back to we get real af everyone i'm vanessa alava and i'm sue robinson please remember to like comment and subscribe to the show
1: Joining us all the way from New Zealand is Raki Syed. Raki is a VR developer and visual effects lighting artist who is currently the program director of the Design Technology Master's Program at Victoria University of Wellington. She'll be sharing ideas on Hollywood-themed technology as well as what the future of entertainment consumption holds. Raki, welcome to the show. Welcome. Good morning, Sue
2: and Vanessa. Well, morning for me. uh, Totally different time zone for you, I know.
0: (laughs) I've actually had a glass of wine poured, so it's definitely not morning here. (laughs) Five o'clock somewhere, right? That's right.
1: (laughs) Well, before we jump in, Ricky, how can our
2: listeners connect with you online? You can find me in a number of places. I'm on Twitter. I'm Hydrox and Horlicks at Twitter. Um, I'm also Hydrox and Horlicks on Instagram. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn and at the Victoria University of Wellington website, which is, of course, where I teach. Um, so I'm super easy to find and contact through the VUW
0: university pages. Can you spell for us the Hydrox and Horlicks? Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> H-R-Y-D-R-O-X, Hydrox. AND Horlicks H O R L I X and it's all one word and there's a story behind that but I won't tell you <laughs>
1: I feel like that's an offline conversation. Sue and I often reference Star Wars-like holograms and Black Mirror-inspired brain chips like the grain, which seems to have captured the interest of a certain Elon Musk. However, let's talk about the many ways Hollywood has and continues to influence and inform what technology looks like.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a long history and we can just sort of jump through what I consider to be pivotal moments as they relate to the work that I do. And so there's this, there's a really great book that Rebecca Solnit wrote um, a while back about Edward Muybridge. And it's basically an Edward Muybridge biography, but in it, she really unpacks how, um, what allowed Edward Muybridge to become what he became, which was like a photographer in the early period of cinema, was this Specific conflation of who he was, where he was, which is California, and more specifically, what became Silicon Valley, and the intersection of Silicon Valley um, money and thinking, and of course, way before it was Silicon Valley, but still Northern California and Hollywood innovation and thinking. And so he hooked up with Stanford, um, who of course, you know, then endowed Stanford University, uh, had money from railroads, and then all that stuff sort of like folded into the development of um, capital for Silicon Valley and the development of technology. And then the labs, of course, that came out of Stanford, and then also the kind of thinking that was happening with early cinema and the money that was going into what would become the studio system. And then she talks about the historical context as well of like indigenous peoples and war and climate change, like in this super interesting Rebecca Solnit way. But that really is the earliest moment, one of the early moments in which you see this intersection of technology and innovation and creativity between Hollywood and Silicon Valley to create a specific kind of um, Hardware like cameras in this particular case, large format cameras that would then be the basis of cinema of this of the film industry, and then for me like one of the things I'm really interested in is what um, what's called like a media v- archaeology of visual effects, and so like looking at this early period before visual effects became what it is when people like me went into the industry in the early 2000s, um, but looking at like the early early 70s and the late 60s, and certain films like 2001 Space Odyssey, and more specifically, of course, the first Star Wars. And so with Star Wars, George Lucas really wanted to do something which was not just like create spectacular images, which had been happening for a long time, right? So like we we can go like to around the time of Moybridge and look at George Melies and what are called trick films. And that's like, he's kind of considered the godfather of visual effects because he was doing in-camera tricks that were magical. Um, But what George Lucas wanted to do is he wanted to create a system which wouldn't just allow for these like spectacular one-off moments in films but would allow us to do things at scale. So like hundreds of shots in a movie that were consistent and that could be made using a pipeline and that artists could sort of participate in this pipeline and work in a way that all the shots fit together and felt like they were... Consistent. And so rather than spectacular moments, world building, which of course is what we're most interested in cinema um, and new technologies as well. There's all these interesting moments where he was talking to people like Gene Youngblood, who wrote a book about expanded cinema, like thinking about how in the 60s and 70s, how cinema was already expanding, trying to break out of the two dimensional theatrical format that we know cinema to be. And I think that ever since then, that's what's happened. Like not only has cinema expanded, but it has contracted and expanded again, right? So we've got so many um, scenes, screens, we've got tiny screens, we've got medium-sized screens, we've got big screens, and we've even got like screenless screens with virtual reality um, and augmented reality and like HoloLens and all this stuff. So I mean, that really, I think, like that's that's to me the second most interesting moment in which technology and cinema start to come together to innovate and expand what our idea of film is. And then, you know, um, more recently, like when I was a student at USC, University of Southern California, in the late '90s, early 2000s, USC. Um, started creating these labs where they were exploring very specific technologies. And they had a lab. They were funded by the United States military to basically do virtual reality research. And we know that with virtual reality, like so many other technologies as well, there's this long history of the military using it to do pilot training, to do simulators. And so it's really like the research that goes into Whatever you want to call it, DARPA or labs that are funded by the military, then comes out. Once it reaches a certain stage, it becomes sort of integrated into the consumer market. And I think that's where we are now, is that like that late 90s, early 2000s was when the military was still doing a lot of research and funding labs and research institutions. And then more recently, in the last five years, we've sort of pushed that stuff out into the consumer market. And of course, that's where it more rapidly develops. And that's where people like me could start doing stuff with it.
0: Super interesting. And you've given a great sort of sweeping look at how we consume media and entertainment. And I would be interested in also hearing, Rocky, your thoughts about how Hollywood sort of predicts technological change. And I'm going to give a really silly example, but when I was a kid, I used to watch The Jetsons. (laughs) And it was such a fun little cartoon series, but they had things like flying cars, which, you know, now we're talking about having autonomous taxis that are airborne. So do you feel that Hollywood in some ways and science fiction in some ways does give us a glimpse at where our technology is going?
2: Yes. And I think Hollywood is definitely interested in that. But I think more broadly, artists are interested in that. And that's something that I think is really important for artists right now to understand, accept, and use as a motivation to feel like our discipline is wrapped up in a kind of utopian thinking. Like that's our job, right? In order for the world to get behind this idea that we can make our world a better place, we have to be able to visualize it. And that's what artists do, is they visualize the world that we want. And then it's, you know, the work of scientists and technologists and politicians and other kinds of thinkers to like actually help us get there. And so writers in particular along with visual artists have been really great at doing that for a long time so like just to go back to 2001 space odyssey i was thinking about it recently and there is that moment in 2001 where um one of the characters is talking to his daughter he's on a spaceship and he's talking to her and he's basically in like a zoom room right
1: (laughs) like there's, there's this little
2: booth that's set up in his space where he goes and he does FaceTime with his daughter and kind of in a weird way, we're there now. We all need Zoom rooms. We got to have video chats with each other all the time because we can't be where we need to be. So that's just like one small way. But yeah, like from a from a more like philosophical perspective, I absolutely believe that that's our responsibility. Like we have to work with geoengineers and climate change scientists to help visualize and like inception into the popular consciousness, like the possibilities, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that that's our power. And that's what I feel our responsibility is right now.
1: Ah, you articulated that so beautifully. I love that, that, you know, you have the creative capacity to visualize something that potentially other people can't, but they have other areas of expertise where they can actually make that visualization happen. Right. There has been a lot of focus in the last, decade or so on dystopian world building,
2: or dystopian world deconstructing, however you want to look at it. And I feel, and a lot of my visual effects friends feel the same, that even though we're a very small part of this industrial complex that creates these franchise films, I personally feel like I have to take responsibility for participating in creating and visualizing this world that is not a place that we really want to live anymore. And so we have to do better. We have to think about how we can change that.
1: So that's a great transition. Please elaborate on your career as a VR developer, as a visual effects lighting artist up to this point. I started,
2: you know, I went to film school at USC in the late 90s and early 2000s. And when I was there, I studied first film theory and then animation and digital arts. And before that, I was just kind of lucky in that I grew up in this small town in Southern California that had a really cool animation program in our high school and junior high. So I started making animated films when I was 12. And I just kind of fell in love with animation and the idea that one person can actually make a film when you're doing animation, Um, which is not the case. When you go and watch the big movies that we all fall in love with, it takes like hundreds of people to make those. But actually one artist could like toil away in their basement and make a cool animated film. So that was an idea that I fell in love with as a very young person. And when I went to USC, I sort of like got the, the larger context of how that's art, why that's important, what you can do with it. Um, And even though USC has this reputation for being very mainstream sort of Hollywood aligned, I think the animation program that I went to was very much like, run by feminists, and all about the art. So that was an idea that was implanted in my head. And then after I left SC, I went and worked in the studio system for 10 years. So I started off more or less at at Disney Animation, where I worked on a bunch of feature animated films. Um, And that was like extended grad school, because that's where I really learned what it means to be a technical person that works to support a creative vision. And how do you make yourself useful to that process when there's so many different moving parts? And then after that, I came to New Zealand uh, just for one year to work (laughs) at Weta Digital and um, ended up working at Weta for like eight years. And now I've been here for 12 years. And Weta is really where I learned about not just the technical aspect of being useful to the filmmaking process, but how you kind of also have to be artistic, and it's those two things in combination that make you what's called a technical artist or a technical director. And what does it mean to have a good eye? How can you look at an image and figure out why it works, why it doesn't work, um, how you can make it better? And you know, from a lighting perspective, and that, that sort of was my area of discipline in a bunch of different specific ways, but, That's what I'm really interested in is how do you tell a story visually through light? I see light as like matter, digital matter that can be used to sculpt and mold an image. And basically at the level of the pixel, how do you support storytelling at the level of the pixel? Um, So that's something that I really like over the eight years that I was at Weta, I learned that from by working with a bunch of amazing artists and doing a thing. It's like, whatever that 10,000 hour rule is probably like, multiplied that by a few. And over the period of several franchise films, um, you know, all the Hobbits, several Apes, a bunch of Avengers films, and Avatar, of course, um, really understanding what it
1: means to master a very
2: particular area of the filmmaking
1: process. And I think that ties in too so much. We always talk about STEM and STEAM related fields and we love STEAM because of the A in STEAM mm-hmm. and bringing the arts into yeah. that dynamic of data and uh, engineering and it, it all ties in beautifully together.
2: Yeah. And I think that that's, that's something that now I get to talk to my students about, um, which is that visual effects is a unique art form in that it really does mean that you you can mostly be an artistic person. And now the tools are much more user friendly to support that. So we're going to start to see lots of different kinds of artists and people get into the industry, which I think is a good thing. In the past, the knowledge was much more specialized and really focused on your ability to not just read complex error logs and render logs, but to write code. And that's going to always be useful and I think powerful. Um, But this idea, like what is a technical artist? A technical artist is someone who not only embraces technology, but isn't afraid to um, get into the code, look at it, and then use it to shape an artistic vision. So it's both those things. And I think that can be a little bit daunting to some young artists. They say, you know, I have a lot of young artists that come to me and say, well, I don't I don't know how to code. I don't want to code. It's not that they're afraid of coding. It's more so like they're afraid of the discourse around coding, like who is allowed to code, what kind of people code, and also what kind of people talk about coding. So that's something that I'm really interested in dispelling um, in the program that we run here at Victoria and just like in the men that
1: I do with my students. I'm sure you're always saying, run to the mirror.
2: (laughs) Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, And, you know, I want the discourse to change. And I think that with the younger generation of artists who will just walk the walk, like it will. But um, a thing that I'm really interested in right now is there's a lot of great conversations happening through the Black Lives Matter movement about like how do we decolonize certain aspects of the industry. And I think like this idea of decolonizing visual effects is not something a lot of people are talking about, but I want people to be talking about it because I think it has really large implications. So like with visual effects, it's a pretty small industry and it's even within the context of Hollywood misunderstood or kind of opaque. But I feel like we have this enormous responsibility because we're manufacturing culture, you know? So like when you look at Avatar or the Avengers films or Wonder Woman or any of these things, like there are very particular codes of race, class, gender, all this stuff happening there. And we are helping to shape that. So I think that part of the inability for some of these films to be able to speak to a diverse storytelling tradition or diverse audiences is because the people who make them historically have not been diverse. And we really need to change that. Um, Mm. You know, we Mm -hmm. need to change how we... um, have those conversations about who is allowed to participate in that filmmaking process?
0: I think that some of that coding, to speak to your observations about coding, I think some of that will change over the years because I think more and more schools, the educational system is going to introduce coding to everybody. At least that's my hope because it's needed for so many different disciplines. So I think that that piece will hopefully come along. Um, I do think though that when you think about an artistic person and an artistic temperament it's a certain type of person typically like they probably all pretty much vote similarly and have similar kind of base value systems and i think it's really important to your point rocky to um, open that world up to people who think really differently to challenge the artist and i'm wondering if um, the education system that you're part of you know has any kind of curriculum or lessons that encourage your students to look at people who think very differently from them, so that when they are creating, they take into account those people who maybe think very, very differently politically, uh, religiously, technologically, on all different levels. How do you address that?
2: So one of the ways that we know that we should be addressing that, and we can always do better, is like how we conduct portfolio review. So this starts at the university level, and I think it applies to the industry as well, is when we look at portfolios that we receive from students, there's a clear pathway that when we get a really great portfolio, which means the student has great skills, they're using like the high end software, they're making certain kinds of images that are very polished. We know that if we put those students directly into the program, they'll have success. Our reel will look a certain way, we'll win awards, you know, like the the system keeps ticking over. Um, But what happens if we uh, evaluate portfolios for something else? Not necessarily polished images, not even necessarily images that are computer graphics based, but maybe just ideas. And that is a responsibility for us because what it means is that it's going to take a little bit more time. To get that student up to speed. So there's more investment or different kinds of investment on our part. Like maybe they don't understand computer graphics. And so there's a kind of like a foundational curriculum that needs to happen in order to bring them up to a certain level. But then what happens is like the long-term payoff for that is much bigger in that they may not create the best images to begin with, but eventually they become people who think differently and create innovative art and have like amazing stories to tell. And so that's my goal is like to to find those artists who are going to go out and not just like plug into the studio system and keep making awesome images. Some of our students will do that and that's great. But um, students who want to um, become independent artists who have something to say that like maybe doesn't fit into the studio system. And so it's our responsibility to evaluate portfolios for potential and not just for skill level being present in the work itself. And I think that applies to a certain extent. The pressures of the industry itself and the studio system are different. So I understand that. But I think, again, how studios evaluate like whether they're doing... Visual effects has been very kind of network based, like most of other business industries. So, you know, who you know, do people like you? Are you easy to get along with? Um, What's your reputation? What work have you already done? That has been one of the, I think, like the, the most significant ways in which people get jobs and get invited to work at studios, but like art tests and how those art tests could evaluate for, particular skills that maybe are sort of blind to other issues of, like, popularity and reputation and stuff. So, like, I, I think that there are all these barriers that we could resolve, but it takes a certain amount of thinking and effort on our part as gatekeepers to figure out what are fair ways to evaluate. And sometimes those fairer ways require more, um, more bandwidth on our part, and we just have
1: to take that on. Mm -hmm. I think that is a brilliant and touchdown way of thinking of that. I mean, Mm -hmm. that whole changing the ecosystem and the narrative, and it starts with education and this new generation of people coming up in all different areas, but especially since we're talking about entertainment, who's informing those decisions and looking at it in a different way. I'm the first one to say, you can teach anybody anything. Like if they have the passion for it, you can teach them. But Mm -hmm. You cannot teach somebody how to think creatively in an outside-of-the-box way. I think that's something that you're either born with or you're, or you're not. I think that you can maybe take classes and, again, the technical piece of it is something you can learn. But that that passion, that, that uh, je ne sais quoi, that curiosity, that's something that you're born with. Yeah, like um, I guess I,
2: I was reading recently, I think it was the French Psychoanalytical theorist Lacan, who had this word, uh, jouissance. I don't speak French, I'm probably munging it, but it's okay. I like the way it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) And and that word means intellectual pleasure. Mm. Um, and that's something that I'm really interested in is that you know, we know that we can derive all kinds of pleasure from watching spectacle, and that's fine. There's a time and a place for that. I don't know how well it served us, but like intellectual pleasure is sometimes harder, um, but uh, more rewarding. So that's a thing that I want my students to take on is like the burden of intellectual pleasure. And what does that mean? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to, just to get back to the issue of like, how do we change the industry from sort of an inside out? Like the other thing that I've started doing in my lighting class is even like, what do we, we, you know, I, I think there are really core standards for what makes an image good or bad, appealing or not appealing, um, effective or ineffective. So there's that critical language that should be acquired to understand how to talk about images. But then also, like, to be fair, we should reevaluate what makes an image look good. And so in my lighting class, I talk about beauty lighting, and the tradition of beauty lighting is very much a Western tradition. It starts at the Renaissance, it comes out of Rembrandt, how he lit and painted human faces. That then got taken up in the Hollywood classical system. Um, And then that is still the way that we light characters. So when I tell my students like, look at these Rembrandt paintings and go and watch The Hobbit and look at The Goblin King, they're like blown away. (laughs) I'm like, that's it, that's all you need to know. That's the special sauce. Now just go and light everything like that. Um, There is that, but like what I've started doing is looking at other traditions of realism and lighting and painting, Um, more specifically here in New Zealand with um, the colonial period, which was very bound up, not just in like the Western tradition, but also when colonial painters came to New Zealand and they started painting Maori and indigenous people. Um, These important artifacts are sort of like more complex to understand now. It's not through the colonial lens that we understand them. It's through Maori and indigenous thinking. Um, And then the way in which those images are lit and the way in which those portraits are presented, like the physicality of the human form and even the composition and um, all this stuff I think is ways in which we can start to evaluate beauty and lighting differently and open up what it means for an image to be beautiful. And so I'm always looking at ways in which we can do that. And right now, this is one of the ways. So when I say like, let's decolonize lighting and visual effects, this is what I mean. Like, this is how we actually
0: do it. I think that's so wise and it's so important because you guys are artists, to your point earlier in our conversation, and creators in Hollywood or in the filmmaking industry, you're stewards of how the rest of the world perceives things like beauty, things like worth and equity. That's why I was asking the question earlier about you know, really inviting people into that conversation who maybe an artist isn't comfortable with because they think very, very differently. But I think people who challenge you make the art better, right? Because it represents more voices who will ultimately see your film. So I think that's just a great point that you're making.
2: Yeah, I love that word, steward. I mean, I think that's one that we should take on more. I read somewhere a while back, I don't know who it was, but they were talking about how we need to be better ancestors, and that's kind of deep. And it yeah, I've been <laughs> I was thinking, thinking about that, that a lot. Like, what because it means that we have to have long term thinking um, forward, not just backwards. And yeah, again, these big budget films they're artifacts of our culture, like it or not. And so, how do we generate artifacts? for future generations that allow us to be good ancestors. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening.
0: So Rocky, I'm wondering, thinking forward, how do you imagine that our grandchildren will be consuming our entertainment and our and our films? And you know, will we be in the same space, immersed with the characters that we watch in movies through some sort of VR iteration down the road, or what, what do you see? I I don't know. I am not a futurist.
2: Like I feel like I've got so much stuff to figure out about the past. I cannot be a futurist, but in terms of what's happening right now, you know, to go back to George Lucas and Gene Youngblood, they had this like really interesting conversation in this short film called George Lucas Maker of Films 1971 where they basically hypothesize about YouTube way before the word YouTube existed. And George Lucas says, like, it would be really great if we could have some way in which the artist could go directly to the audience. And then the audience based on whether or not they liked what you were making would um, allow you to make more or less of it. And, um, you know, cutting out the studio structure, the middle managers, like people who are not artists or audiences having a say in the product. And, you you know, that was like when I, I remember when I watched that, I was like, wow, that was really prescient. Um, And I think like, we have been obviously heading in that direction more and more. And so what's happened is like, the idea of the niche audience is very much a thing now. And in some ways, like the big budget films that I have worked on are becoming, I don't know, like, I don't know that we're going to continue to have those films, like maybe there'll be a handful of them made in the future. But increasingly, like, through artificial intelligence, machine learning and modeling, like platforms are allowing us to learn what people want, what audiences want. And because the cost of delivering things, like whether it's the infrastructure or the pipeline or the software licenses itself, it's all coming down. It makes it possible to deliver a really bespoke kind of story to a small audience. And you can still Ideally, justify the cost of it. And hopefully, we understand that better so that artists can actually uh, make a living and sort of like have a financial model from that that works. But I think that's what's going to just continue to happen more of in that we're not like, we're not going to see a return to a time when cinema is the dominant form because it's no longer the only medium. And so, mediums will continue to spiral off, right? Like, right now, we've got. AR, VR, um, XR, but like that, whatever that underscore star thing is that goes before reality will just continue to expand. So we have immersive games right now, but we don't know what the future of immersive means. And all that means is that there's just gonna be the same number of people watching, um, their attention is divided over many mediums. So we have to find out how those individual mediums can find their right audience.
0: And hopefully that will democratize the creator ecosystem as well, right? Because with with more micro audiences, hopefully there'll be more opportunities for creators to find their niche and to have the opportunity to make a living creating for that niche.
2: Yeah, I guess I, the thing that I worry about is this very neoliberal model, though, that we all have to be entrepreneurs. And, you know, we're all having this conversation. We're all kind of functioning like entrepreneurs now. And... There's great agency in that, but there's also like from an art perspective, there's some pitfalls because if you're spending all your time hustling and trying to raise money and being an entrepreneur, you're not doing the 10,000 hours of like sitting there and making the thing. And so how can you get really good and make something that speaks to audiences when you no longer are allowed to spend all your time doing that? And I think that's something we have to figure out in terms of this new model is how do we allow artists to be artists and still have agency?
1: Hmm, well, that's a great topic to transition into. We had conversations about redefining what success means to you and you personally had um, this This come to Jesus moment, if you will, (laughs) where you were like, to your point exactly, you had the opportunity to really do the thing over and over again in a studio system with um, uh, the protection of a, you know, a nice salary and benefits, etc. And you chose, hey, I'm in this moment where I need to be my own artist and my own person. And I'm going to try to figure that out and what that is. So can you talk to us a little bit about that and that journey shifting from that type of work to listening to your inner voice.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had this moment when I first went into the industry, I had a professor at USC and I had I had gotten a job at Disney Feature Animation and I'd seen her at some screening um, for USC. And she said, oh, Rocky, what are you doing? And I told her, well, I got this job at Disney. and um, And she was like, uh-huh that's nice. <laughs> I just remember like, feeling um, like, excuse me, I got yeah, a job at Disney. I remember feeling so, so <laughs> deflated uh, because she said, well, that's really great. I mean, she wasn't, she was always encouraging, but she was like, but you got to keep working on your own art. And um, I kind of filed that one away and didn't really understand it for another almost, I would say, seven or eight years. And then at some point um, in like maybe during the first Hobbit, <laughs> that, that, that voice started to speak to me again. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do about like being an artist? And so I went and did a master's degree in creative writing and wrote a novel uh, and spent like a year along with working on the first Hobbit, like doing both these things. But it was kind of like this matrix moment where I took the pill and I couldn't go back. Like once you have that idea implanted in your head that you're an artist, and you need to tell your own story. It's just going to keep haunting you. At least that's how I felt. So after the third Hobbit, I was like, I got to get real. And I got to commit to this feeling that I have that I should be making my own art that has been there all along, but I can't shut it out anymore. And so it's a series of trade-offs. Like, yes, the there's, you know, you don't get the it's like exciting to get the street cred to work on the biggest movie that was ever made and to have like a collective conversation about that. Um, and then to be in the um, the womb of the studio system that takes care of you and pays you a good salary and all this other stuff. And then when you're cast out <laughs> and you're an independent artist, it's like, it is scary. I mean, I'm I'm lucky. I am fortunate in that I'm not really cast out because now I, now I have the university infrastructure in which I can operate as an independent artist and still like have a job and be part of this other uh, collective. But um, there are trade-offs like the salary is different. um, The time commitment is different. I have more time, but like, what am I going to do with my time? And I feel this constant pressure to like be really productive as an artist. And so in the first two or three years that I was at Victoria University, I was like still having this existential crisis of like, what am I doing as an artist? Um, but I sort of just started because I had time to research now. And it's was like, oh wow, like research is a really important part of being an artist. And when I was working in the studio system, I never had the bandwidth for that because I was always under the gun to do what I was paid to do. So research, a practice-based art, like, what, what does that mean? How do these two things work together? And then out of that, like just thinking about virtual reality for a couple of years allowed me to then work on this project now, which um, I co-wrote and co-directed with Areto Echeveria, my partner. And it got developed at the Sundance New Frontier Lab. We were invited to Tribeca, to Canna XR. We won an award at Annecy. And so like, it's not the first thing that I did. I did a bunch of other things that didn't work that we don't have to talk about. But it's this idea that like if you're going to be an independent artist you just got to take the risk and you have to put in the time and you got to let go of that other thing so like there was a period in which it was very hard for me to let go of the fact that I wasn't a visual effects artist working in the studio system anymore so like a like a professional identity crisis Mm -hmm. Um, and now after four years I figured out how to take all those skills and reinterpret them in this new way and now I understand it. But I had to I had to go through that sort of valley of darkness and searching and uncertainty. Um, and there's probably going to be another
0: valley of uncertainty <laughs> like after this. I think it's not really any different in any industry, even outside of art. There's this thing that corporate America calls golden handcuffs, right? Which is where you have this great package of job security and maybe that job title, but you're not satisfied because there's another calling that you feel you have. I think anybody who's entrepreneurial, and you certainly are, Rocky, probably also feels that tension. I know a lot of the ladies that we interview on this show have had to come to to terms with, am I going to do the safe path or am I going to do the path that is very risky, but that feels really authentic to me? And there's no guarantee that you'll be successful with it, but you never know if you don't try. So um, I think that that's sort of a universal thing that we all grapple with regardless of what industry we serve.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Uh, we call it the Silk-Lined Coffin, which is not even darker. It's darker than
0: Golden Handcuffs. Yeah. Is dark. Um, is. Get out of the Golden Handcuffs or you'll end up in this Silk-Lined yeah, Coffin. That's exactly. just not a good path to be
1: on. I was thinking like road less traveled, you know, that whole thing, <laughs> optimistic. But uh, okay, Silk-Lined Coffin. No, your Silk-Lined <laughs> Coffin is not such a bad place to be because as you said, you mentioned your uh, project. Talk to us a little bit about it minimum mass. What Mm -hmm. is it? What's it about? Um, How can people potentially uh, experience it?
2: Yeah. So minimum mass, like I'm really proud of minimum mass because it brings together a bunch of things that I've been thinking about for a long time. And so it's the story of a couple who experience a series of miscarriages and come to believe that their children are being born in another dimension. So it's dealing with like, um, miscarriage just dealing with like the female body um and doing it through like this very gritty realistic story through the speculative lens because we wanted to tell a personal emotional story but we wanted to open it up to a wider audience and so it's very much in this um indie cinema tradition of like tell something really personal but do it in it through the intersection of genre so that you could bring something new to the story and to the medium and I feel like with virtual reality like there's so many incredible artists working in this medium but I think there's there's we, we don't understand how genre works with the medium yet so what I see a lot of is I see a lot of fairy tales a lot of sort of um experiences that invite adults to embody a childlike outlook on the world, which is totally cool. But that's just one way of using the medium. And what we really wanted to do was to tell something that was gritty and intense and like visualize an emotional landscape in the way that our favorite um, art and indie um, films in the past have done so like a film that we love of course is 2001 space odyssey but also like under the skin which is this very intense um, dark emotional uh, science fiction film Um, so we wanted to like work in that tradition and see how do you do that in virtual reality so that's what we've done with minimum math so the barrier right now and this is you know the barrier with the medium is that you have to have a headset. And ideally, it should be a tethered headset for minimum mass because it's not for the Oculus Quest. It's for the Oculus Rift S or a comparable tethered headset. Right now, we're sort of doing it in these contained festival um, exhibitions with a plan, hopefully, to have a longer-term distribution strategy after that.
0: This might feel like a step back to you, but will it ever be possible to experience minimum mass in in 2D, like as a flat film experience for those who don't have the headsets?
2: I mean, that is something we're thinking about. And the trailer is a 2D trailer, so you ladies can have a look at it and then we're going to post it up on our website. I like the idea of having like a 2D flat version of it, just because I love animation. I love playing around with cameras and rendering off 2D images. It's just like, there's a tension there. Like as much as I would love to share it with people and maybe we will do something like that. I really Mm -hmm. want to push the medium. Um, And so at what point do you entice people to want to experience the story by giving them bits of it in 2D? And at what point do you say, okay, if you want more, you gotta double down on VR and come into the headset. And I think that what's happening with COVID and the festivals and IRL experiences is a difficult period and a difficult conversation that as an industry we had to reckon with anyways, which is the privilege and the very small numbers of people through that privilege who actually get to go to festivals, especially the top end festivals and experience virtual reality, was always a problem. If we wanna tell stories that change um, how audiences think, then we gotta have more of an audience see those stories. So by delivering them on these tech platforms and getting more people at home to watch the experiences through their headset, we're doing something that we had to do anyways. And uh, I I think it's actually causing the industry to develop rapidly in a way
1: that we weren't doing before. Mm-hmm. gentle nudges mm-hmm. in the silver linings of all of this, right? Yeah. Um, well, and, yes. I and that to tell
2: 2d. I that because otherwise <laughs> I could be hanging in Venice. Right now. <laughs> you can hang in virtual
1: uh, Venice. Come
0: on. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> the same. And, and Rocky,
1: <laughs> when you said that that 2d flat version, we'll be sure to put it in the show notes. So if anybody would like to take a glimpse and then double down on that headset uh, to, to fully immerse themselves, um, you can do so. Well, uh, We want to be respectful of your time, Rocky. This has been an amazing conversation, Mm -hmm. very insightful and challenging the way people think, which we love. Uh, We have this thing called the lightning round where we ask our guests a series of questions just to get to know them a little better. Are you up for the challenge?
2: Am I ready? Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right, we're going to start with what profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
2: I've come around to the idea that maybe I could have been an engineer. My father was an engineer, which is why I didn't want to be an engineer. But now I feel that if I had, I would have extra skills that would be super practical.
1: Steam, steam. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Rocky, how do you define success? I define success by if I'm spending most of my time for me personally, sitting at a computer making things, making art, figuring out like debugging, figuring out solutions to creative problems, like that's what I feel is a successful day. And I think to sort of extrapolate for a general audience, if you spend a majority of your day doing that thing that allows you to have flow, creativity, problem solving in
1: your core discipline, then that, that, that's cool. What resources do you wish existed for women in tech or looking to get into tech?
2: I actually really wish there was more mentoring about what it means mm-hmm. to embody female leadership, because I think female leadership is different than our current understanding of leadership with a capital A. Like leadership has really been bound up in masculinity, in um, a certain kind of hierarchical thinking. And I would personally love to see more women who have succeeded through, you know, a female embodied leadership um, if we could find ways to access that knowledge
0: and share it. What is the weirdest food you've ever eaten?
2: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you the weirdest food I didn't eat. There was a party that I went to and they had um, like chocolate covered grasshoppers and insects. And I know this is a whole thing right now that as human beings, we should be eating insects to get protein because it's more sustainable. And I'm totally down for that, but I'm just like emotionally not there yet.
1: Rocky, what celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie? Me in a movie? I
2: don't know. I kind of want to say Mindy Kaling, but I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> great choice. Mindy. Yes, <laughs> Mindy, if
1: you're listening. <laughs> only
2: because, like, not only is she this-y, but she's way, way, way funnier than me. So, like, in a in a speculative f- version of myself, I imagine myself to be super funny.
0: What is something about you that people would be
2: surprised to know? I read a lot of New Age books, <laughs> even though it's not always rigorous it's not scientific it's not like it's not the kind it's it's a little bit magical thinking so I have this like massive cache of new age magical thinking self-help books on my kindle that just stay there for uh now 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 I've outed myself but like
1: (laughs) 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 this is a safe place (laughs) yes it is it is I I love that I
2: go to the magical new age thinking, yeah. That's your happy place, okay, (laughs) got it.
1: What's a funny mistake you've made when you were starting out and the story behind it?
2: My first interview, which was at ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, right out of school, I wore a suit to my interview. Like they flew me up to be a technical assistant, which is like entry-level job, and I wore a suit. And you know, history, we we can all be honest about history, I did not get the job. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's the
2: thing I tell my students like in visual effects you got to be smart you got to be cool you got to be professional do not show up to a job interview in a suit
1: so wait wait let's what's the takeaway smart blazer ripped jeans and converse not even a blazer like just no like, <laughs> probably,
0: probably a hoodie or a cardigan you heard there. okay yeah. if you could start a movement that was guaranteed to go global what would that movement be my movement is really niche
2: but it's to empower visual effects artists and to value labor, like I think that part of the inability for our industry to unionize, um, the way the the reason why visual effects industry has all these issues with gender and race and class is because uh, we internally haven't appro- like adopted this idea that we need to have a labor movement, and then the larger industry and popular culture don't understand the value of what we do, so. Um, Visual effects is like when people think about movies, they're always like, oh, it's magic. And those are a bunch of wizards and they're just pushing buttons and doing cool stuff. And I think like what that's fine and that's fun, but it undervalues the labor. So I really want to see a movement in which the labor and the art and the craft of visual effects artists and perhaps artists everywhere is really understood and valued as true capital and labor.
1: All right, you touched on this a little earlier, but I'll let you elaborate. What myth about women in your field would you like to dispel?
2: I think the the, the belief that women who have children have a limited shelf life in visual effects. Um, that's That's a problem in all industries, but in visual effects where you're expected to be at your desk at a location for a certain number of hours each day and in crunch time when you're delivering a show – Um, historically women who have families uh, have to step away from that or have to take on other roles that aren't art or tech roles they have to be pushed into um, admin roles and so I would really like to see
0: that change. Hmm. How have you surprised yourself in your journey and this could be a strength that you didn't know you had or a hang-up you realized you shouldn't have worried about. It's still a hang up
2: I worry about, but I think for me, operating as a producer on my own projects, which means that I have to raise money, I have to develop relationships, I have to go out and have conversations with people um, and speak to in public spaces, like that's that's a barrier for me. Like I'm not naturally good at that. I have massive terror inside about doing that. And so, you know, pushing through that, I think has been scary, but at times rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> because you know like this is not a thing that they teach you in art school maybe they do now but in my time they were just like be an awesome artist sit in your little cubicle be in the dark do what you need to which was very nurturing but also like not enough of a reality check. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Right. well and i think it's true in other fields too because i know we've we've spoken with women scientists who wanted to bring their um their product to market and they had no business background and they had the same self-doubts. Like, I don't know anything about business. I'm great at technology and science, but you know, but good for you for pushing through. Absolutely. All right. Last one for you, Recky. fill in the blank, blank like a girl.
2: Persevere like a girl, because I actually think that women are really good at, um, finding many ways to succeed, like not just one way. If one thing doesn't work, then we sort of hunger down, we find another way, we keep at it. So I think persevering like a girl is a thing that I've really uh, learned from the women in my family because women are just more creative about problem solving. So like, yeah, like, let's, let's take that further, debug like a girl, um, problem solve like a girl, like all that stuff I think is related to our ability to persevere.
1: Amazing. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for this great conversation. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. And thank you for finding me.
2: It's really cool to talk to two American ladies uh, from my own home country who are doing awesome things. Like, Thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: It has been an absolute pleasure. And it's so great that we have this network that we're building all around the world.
1: Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast.
0: We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. And we want to give a special thanks to Florence Lumsden, our associate producer for the We Get Real AF podcast. You can find Flo on LinkedIn at Florence Lumsden, L-U-M-S-D-E-N, or at her website, danceandflowproductions.com. That's D-A-N-C-I-N-F-L-O productions. We'll meet you back
1: here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.